Well, Father, I pray that this morning you'll give us a glimpse of how you are present and active in our midst, even in the most confounding scenarios of life. Uh, Lord, please, would you open our eyes to see afresh, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning. <clears throat> my name is Scott Shaw. I'm one of the priests here at IAC. And my wife and I are also sent out from IAC. Our full-time job is pastoring missionaries, so we're frequently away from here for weeks at a time. But uh, we love being able to represent IAC wherever we go in this world. We also are continuing today our series on the feeding of the 5,000. We want to take yet another angle on this story as we just read from the Gospel of Mark. In doing so, I want to share a couple of different stories to kind of run parallel through this message. And I want to begin with one that Beth and I found ourselves in several years ago. We were in Kolkata, India. Kolkata is a major city of the nation of India up in the northeast corner of the country. And we were there to provide care for a team that was working amongst those who had been sold into the sex industry. They had been trafficked. Sometimes it was by their own families, purely a necessity of survival. Some of them were sold at very young ages, as early as 12 or 14. And this team was doing a remarkable job of providing rehabilitation, reformation. They had come up with an amazing business model that provided not only a means of the ladies getting out of those systems, but also having a sustainable means of, of supporting for themselves. It's frankly one of the most beautiful ministry models I had seen. It was quite remarkable in its effectiveness. And the team that we were there to care for was a mess. They, um, they were all clinically burnt out. They had grown in cynicism as they looked at the monster system that exists in this part of the world and the human trafficking that's going on there. They were confused. They were themselves abused in their, the society. Kolkata is one of the most violent dehumanizing cities I have ever been in. It's exceedingly dark spiritually, very poor. And this team was struggling to survive while they were also there to see other lives changed. Where was God at work in that confusing situation? Well, Beth and I were there to provide care for them. We had no background in their professional field. We don't deal in human trafficking. We don't live in their city. We do not know their world well, well, and yet we were there and they were looking to us for some very concrete answers in some really, really difficult situations. All of us find ourselves in situations. We are the ones to respond. It might be in our homes, it might be in our communities. This church is immersed in a community with needs all around it. We can't address all the needs, but we are certainly called to address some of the needs. And they are complex. We can't just throw money at it. It's so much more demanding than that. And so we look at this feeding of 5,000, and we, we, we want to see what Jesus was up to. We want to start at the moment that Jesus has taken that bread, he has blessed it, he's handed it to those 12. There are 5,000 people plus scattered across the hillside there. They've been there all day for hours. Jesus has been teaching them, and now they are hungry. There's no Chick-fil-A's around the corner. They are far outside of Grubhub's range. 
They are in a pickle. Somebody's got to feed these people. The only thing worse than a hungry person, a hangry person, is a mob of hangry people. And we have a mob of hungry people. And so Jesus takes that bread, he takes that fish, and he starts breaking chunks of it off and handing it to the 12. And those 12 turn around, and they walk up to that first group of 50, and all they have is a little piece of bread. It's all they've got. Now we know what happens. How did it happen? What was the dynamic that was going on between Jesus and disciples? Jesus is not just feeding people. He's discipling these men. He knows that in a short time he will depart and these will be the start of the church. And there are important principles and realities for these people to be immersed in as they go into a world strewn with needs. And they're the ones in the name of Christ to respond. This dynamic, this tension is what we call divine agency and human agency. The the divine presence and activity of God and also the human role and effort that is exerted in any one of these situations. How do these two scenarios, these two realities, these two dynamics intersect? We say that God is present and active, but we also know that we're called to do something about the realities that we find ourselves in. As I said, I want to bring along two scenarios from my personal life to kind of be illustrative of what this divine agency and human agency is about. When Beth and I were young parents, we found ourselves in a very challenging parenting situation. We had a son who was struggling deeply. He was struggling in school. He was struggling academically, relationally. It was just elementary school years. Regular calls from the principal office. Parent-teacher meetings were no fun. We often felt constantly undone by what to do for this boy of ours. We didn't have answers. We didn't know what to do. We prayed. We cried out to God. We frequently felt overwhelmed. It was exhausting. It was frustrating. It was high stress. And yet we are this boy's parents. We are the ones who have to keep stepping in to this fray with this kid day in for weeks and months. And this went on for 20 plus years, sticking with this son. So often, so often I would go and sit on his bed at night after he was asleep and I would literally weep not knowing what to do. And yet I am the one who was called to meet that boy's needs to be his father and to be with him. All of us have situations like this in our lives. Be one of our kids, a spouse, a parent, maybe a sibling. We know people at work or in our neighborhoods, our extended family that are deeply struggling. We have a sense that we are to do something, but we don't know what to do. It confounds us. It undoes us. It pushes us to our limits often. Outside of our homes, there's the larger needs of the world. It's so easy just to turn a blind eye to these things. And yet we as followers of Christ are called to respond. When Beth and I were with that team in Kolkata, we had a job to do. We had all kinds of professional skills to draw upon. But this, this team needed something just more than our professional skills. 
They needed a significant reorientation around a, a reality that was larger than the one that they were immersed in. All they could see was the violence. All they could see was how hard it was. All they could see was the tens, the tens of thousands of people they hadn't gotten to yet. They had saved lives of dozens. But what about the other 10,000s? And as I said, they had grown cynical. They were burnt out. They were exhausted. They were frustrated. And they were also loving what they were doing. It was a complex situation. This church is called to tend to the refugees that come to the city. We're seeking to be a presence at Queen Palmer Elementary down the street. Those kids and their families, the needs that are there are significant and they are not simple. They are complex. And we as a church are called to step into that. So where is that line between divine agency, where God is present and doing something, and we as people, with our limitations, our own struggles and our own problems, are supposed to step in, give ourselves, and work on behalf of other people? How do these two intersect? Oftentimes, when we find ourselves in these situations, temptations will fly at us. And I want to look at a few of these temptations because they can steal the very life out of us. The first temptation I want to look at is to assume that when we find ourselves in these deepest struggles is that God is distant, he is aloof, and he is passive, that he is not doing anything. It is so easy when we find ourselves in situations where we are crying out to God to please do something, and it seems like he is doing nothing to then take one more step and say, well, I don't know where he is, but he's not here. This is, a, this is called a deistic outlook on life. The idea that, yeah, there's a God, but he's out there somewhere, and he certainly isn't interested or concerned about the problems of my life because he's not doing anything about it. That's where some of the members on this team in Kolkata had gotten to. One day I, I was in a conversation with one of the team members, and they said, God is not doing anything, so I have to. That's what happens when we become overwhelmed by the needs around us. And all of a sudden, these subtle lies begin to filter in. We can't put two and two together, and so we begin to extrapolate. And one of the temptations, and it is a very real temptation, is assume that God has left. Another temptation is to assume that God is displeased with us and he is punishing us. That I have done something to mess up, and he's just angry. And I've got to figure out what I did wrong, clean up my messes, so somehow I could conjole God to get back on my side of this thing and do something. There is no condemnation. This is not how God deals with his people. He is not walking around with his hand just cocked, ready to smack us the first time we mess up and just deal with us with our consequences of our foolish choices. He is so much more merciful and kind than that. Now, some will argue and it's true biblically, that he does discipline his children. Hebrews 12 speaks of this. But we need to look at that passage very carefully. Hebrews 12 is rife with familial terms. It speaks of a father with his children, not an angry, capricious God who's just punishing people because he's not happy with them. God is seeking to leave us into a way of life, of abundance, of truth, of goodness. And when I make decisions that lead me away from there, he may sometimes bring me back around and that might be a bumpy road. 
It could be very painful and difficult. He's disciplining me, but not out of punitive manner, out of a father loving his children, loving his child to bring back into a, a path of truth and life. God does not punish us like that. His grace is enough. A third temptation. I call this the Pharaoh complex. I've spoken of this before, I believe, here. The idea that God is Pharaoh and that we, his people, are his minion slaves and he's expecting us to get out there and build his kingdom for him. He's expecting us to get it done. This is rife in the church around the world. I see this in every culture. The idea that God expects us to work harder, do a better, do a more, do a bigger, keep going, keep giving until we just keel over. God is not a Pharaoh and we're not his slave minions. God is a father and we are his children. And God is present and active in this world to this day. And he invites us to join him in what he's doing. Consider this. We don't do God's work for him. Jesus is still very present and active all around us. We don't take Jesus to our neighborhoods. We don't take Jesus to our schools. We don't take Jesus to our families. He's already there. It may be hard to believe that Jesus is working in your extended family, such as it is, but he is there and he is working. We go to those places and we watch to see where Jesus is present and active. And we join him in what he's doing. And so what we're called to do is to be sleuths, detectives, discoverers. Where is Jesus at work in your neighborhood? Go there. Join him there. It takes a fair amount of discernment, of learning to see and to hear, to assess what God is up to in our midst. When I go back and think about raising our son, I tell you, there were, there were so many times in life I could not, I couldn't see the Lord. I, I knew he was present. I knew he was active. I believed, I trusted him, but I couldn't always see it. And sometimes those were just bleak days, and you're just hanging in. These two passages that we looked at today from Isaiah and the book of Acts. Isaiah 26.12 says this, All that we have accomplished, God has done for us. Whatever my wife and I were able to provide for our son, it was blood, sweat, and tears. We worked hard with our kids. We loved them. We hung with them. And God was doing it through us. This is that divine human agency intersection. All that we have accomplished. We do stuff. We get our hands dirty. We run programs and projects. We go to different, we go out in our community and we meet people and touch people and provide for people. That's works that we have done. And... God is in the midst of us doing it through us. The passage in Acts, the NIV says that God was doing extraordinary miracles through Paul. The SV is a little bit more picturesque here. God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. It was Paul's hands who was laying on people. He was the one who was speaking words to them. He was the one looking them in the eyes. He was the ones with them, touching them. And it was God who was doing it through Paul. Who was doing it, Paul or God? Yes. All that we have accomplished, 
you have done. As parents, as spouses, as friends, as workmates, as neighbors, as relatives, as a church, all that we do, God is doing through us. It's both and. We are called to join God in what he's doing. And this begs relationship. We notice in this, this Acts passage, there was a group of exorcists in the region. They had heard about what Paul had accomplished, and they thought, oh, he's got a technique we want to try. And when they tried it, it didn't work out so well for them. Why? They didn't have the relationship with Jesus. What was dynamic about the relationship of what Paul, what Paul was doing, dynamic in the work that Paul was doing in that moment, was the intimacy that he had with Jesus. He and Jesus were working together in that moment to care for people. So this is all about relationship. We are co-creators, co-laborers. We are co-artists, co-beautifiers. God is doing all of this work around us, and he joyfully invites us to join with him in doing it. Now, it may not look fancy like the miracles Paul was doing. It's usually down in the nitty-gritty messiness of life being moms and dads and husbands and wives and friends. People that we work with whose lives are a mess. And we're the ones who can listen to them and offer an orientation, a perspective that maybe they don't know. We can be complicit accessories in what God's doing all around us. So the first dynamic we see in this divine and human agency intersection is relationship. I want to remind you of a familiar passage, the Gospel of John, chapter 15. That's the vine and branches passage. So that says, Jesus says, I'm the vine and you're the branch. The branch is connected to the vine. The branch that is connected to the vine produces fruit, but the focus is not on the results. The focus is not on the fruit. What we're commanded to do is abide. It's relationship. If you abide in me, if you walk with me, if you learn from me, what will happen as an effect, as a corollary, will be fruit in your life. There will be slow, steady maturation in your life. You will have a slow and steady presence in other people's lives. I will do things in and through you that you will not be sure where it came from or how it happened, and it will be like a slow drip in your life, but God is present and active. What he calls us to do is to abide. If we as a church are going to plant churches in this community, if we're going to have an impact at Queen Palmer, if we're going to impact the refugees that come from other countries into our community, if we're going to do these things as a church, first things first, how's our walk with God as a church? Are we yielded to him? Are we following him? Are we learning from him? Are we being nourished by him? Because that's exactly what we have to offer to our communities. Nothing more. And then he works through all of our professional competencies, all of our personalities, the collective mess of us all. That's what he uses in our communities. But it begins first with intimacy. That's why those temptations I mentioned earlier are so dangerous. It's because they separate us and sever relationship. If I assume God's angry with me, why do I want to go hang out with God? He's just going to be grumpy with me anyways. If I assume that he's not helping because he's off someplace, well, then he's not accessible. I guess I'm on my own to figure this out. 
That's why those temptations are so deadly. This is about, first and foremost, relationship. Let's tie this all back together. So Beth and I are wrestling as parents, raising this son. And many of you are wrestling with real-life situations in your home, your families and your workplaces, wherever it might be. And we're there face-to-face with that team in Kolkata. And we are to be a, a, a pastoral presence, to bring a sense of perspective into the reality, which seems so dauntingly overwhelming. And yet God was very much at work in their midst. The disciples, they have that little chunk of bread. And I, I, I wonder if they tore a piece off and when they looked back, it was back again or something. I don't know how the physics of all this thing worked. But Jesus gave to them and that is what they had to give to the crowd. Remember a couple of weeks ago when Ken was preaching about the bread in this scene. He talked about how Jesus is the bread of life. He's our bread of life. He gives his life to us. We're nourished in Christ. We feed on Christ. He strengthens us. He heals us. He makes us whole. And then he sends us out into the world as loaves of bread. We are the bread for the world. We take all that Christ has given to us and we hand it to other people. We may not have all the answers for our friends' problems. We don't have the answers for our own problems. This is an opportunity to walk by faith, to step into the crowds, to step into our families, to step into these places of need and to provide for them. Because my task with my son was just to keep showing up. I was his dad. And I didn't have a clue what to do most days, but I knew this. He's my boy. I'm going to love him. I'm going to keep walking with him. I don't know how we're going to get from point A to point B. Dear Lord, have mercy. Get us there. And he has. When we were face-to-face with that team in Kolkata, you better believe there were prayers going on. It's like, holy cow, Lord, you got to help us out here. This is complex. We're still, in, we're still in contact with many of those people to this day. And we gave them the reality that God sees them and is with them. This is all that we can do, friends is to be present in one another's lives. It keeps showing up, trusting that as we do works, it is God doing it through us. We may not always see the results. All that we accomplish, he has done for us. Through you, God is doing works. Through this church, he will manifest his presence. He has and he will continue to do that. Let's pray. Well, Father, I, um, I would pray that you would strengthen our faith in those places in our lives where we have doubts or resistance or fear or just not a whole lot of faith. I would pray that you would graciously, as you always do, step in the gap. And I pray for my friends today in their real-life situations that don't have answers, you would give them hope hope of your presence, hope of your constant abiding care. Keep teaching us how to abide in you, to walk with you, that you may pour your life into us and that we might be bread to other people. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.